God bless you. Thank you for the worship team for uh, leading us to the throne of grace this morning. Would you open your Bibles, please? We're in, uh, as you know, Matthew chapter 5. And beloved, I hope that this study is becoming more than just an exercise in Bible study, more than something you can check off your to-do list, that it's becoming life-changing and life-giving because I don't know about you, but I want my life changed. I want to be more like Jesus Christ through the power of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. I want all that He has for me. So, beloved, if you'll open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be looking, beginning in verse 31. And, beloved, this is a long lesson I've added to it. I know it makes some of you a bit twitchy when I go off my notes, and really, rightly, it should. It should. We should have a moment of silence, you know what I'm saying? But I just want to tell you that I hope you will listen, that you will listen with expectancy, that you will take notes, and that you will have determined that when God speaks, you want to act. When you hear from Him, you want a life that has changed. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. This is a righteousness that you and I have in Christ that far exceeds externals and religious ceremonies and conformity. Beloved, you and I who know the Lord, who have met Him on His terms of repentance and faith, Beloved, you and I have been declared judiciously righteous in God's eyes because of Christ. He has imputed on our behalf the very righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. And beloved, that's something to get excited about. Now, in the passage that Donna taught us last week, this is a continuation because Jesus gives six examples that contrast his own authority as the original author and ultimate interpreter of the law with the false teaching and the false authority claimed by the rabbis with their oral traditions. They had added hundreds of laws and rules and regulation to God's law, distorting it and frankly making it so that they could keep it in part. And they had put this burden on others. They had invented all manner of ingenious ways of working around the intention of the word of God. So I want to move us into the third uh, and following. Donna taught us the first one that had to deal uh, with murder and anger and the second that had to deal with lust and adultery. Look with me in verse 31. I call this God's plan for marriage. Look in verse 31. It says this, Jesus speaking, it is said, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, beloved, divorce was rampant in the Jewish culture. 
Jesus addresses this issue, although these two verses were hardly designed to reveal all of his teaching on divorce and remarriage. They simply are to give us a summary of his teaching, and they are essentially, essentially, beloved, a call to marital fidelity. Remember, it's in the context he's just spoken about lust when it is unchecked, will certainly lead to adultery. And now he's saying adultery will lead to divorce. How do you avoid divorce? Beloved, you live a wholly separated life. He's upholding the institution of marriage. God instituted marriage back in Genesis chapter 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul quotes this passage and adds this to it. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Beloved citizens of the kingdom understand that in marriage, that both parties must be spirit-filled, spirit-led, controlled by the spirit, and aggressively pursuing Jesus Christ as Lord, individually and collectively. And even in that, beloved, let me just drop real close, come up real close so you can catch what I'm trying to say. Marriage is hard. Can I get an amen? I'm talking about people who love God. Craig and I have been at this thing for over 47 years. We were childhood sweethearts. We married at the age of 19. Most of you know my testimony. We were not believers when we got married. We were married five years before we came to faith. Dramatic conversion. I am telling you, we stepped out of darkness and into light under the preaching of Adrian Rogers here at this church. And for over 40 years, Craig and I have planted our lives here and served here because, frankly, they grew us up pastors and leaders and teachers poured truth into us and grew us up in the Lord and then called us by the Lord called us to turn around and pour that truth into others and we've been steadily at it but can I just say one more time marriage is hard work no good marriage just happens why because the power of the flesh is so strong and every day it requires we crucify the flesh. That we live dead to sin and alive to Christ. And yet, beloved, the flesh is so sneaky that it rises up at times and sneaks up on us and takes us down. I know you're all looking like this has never happened, but I know you're agreeing. This is what marriage looks like. It's hard, hard work. And if you think it gets easier just because we've been at it a long time, I will tell you, no. No. Excuse me. I'm talking so fast. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to stop and get a sip of water. Excuse me. This is God's plan for marriage is that Jesus Christ would be exalted and the picture of Christ would be set on display for the entire lost world to see. I don't know about you, but during this last year in pandemic, I have caught myself being more irritable than usual and just a tiny bit needier 
than I would like to own up to. I have caught myself being overly sensitive and easily frustrated. I don't like that about myself. And you perhaps have as well. And frankly, when you're in a marriage covenant, the person that usually spills out on is your spouse. And if you are not careful to nip that in the bud, what happens is it festers and it grows. And suddenly it becomes such a big deal because it was not dealt with in that seed thought that first came to you. And you spend the whole day pondering what you don't really like about him. And you begin to wonder, why did I marry him? I might have done better if I just remained at home. And if you're not careful, you'll begin to be mad at his mother. Because you'll start thinking to yourself, if she had trained the boy better, we wouldn't be in this position. I can tell you that my husband is an absolute darling. You know, I very affectionately call him Mr. Stockdale. It is just a nickname, just a nickname. And I'm not even sure where that came from. But Mr. Stockdale is the kindest man I have ever met in my entire life. He is gentle and tender, and kind, and loving, and he adores me. And yet, I catch myself at times deciding I'm going to tell him a thing or two. And on one such occasion, when we had had just a, a few words, a little disagreement, a little spat, that after it was resolved, we were both kind of laughing about it. And Craig said to me very playfully, now darling, obviously... Obviously, you have not trained me well in this matter. To which I said, I have two things I'd like to say about that. The first is, I have never tried to train you. The second is, if I had, you'd be farther along. Listen, God instituted marriage and he designed it so that you and I would have to rely upon the indwelling spirit of God and the word of God in order to know how to do this thing well, in order to exalt Jesus Christ in our married relationship. That's God's plan for marriage. The second thing I want you to see, and again, I know we're moving very quickly, is what I call God's perspective on vows. Look with me in verse 33. Again, you have heard from the ancients. You have been told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is evil. In that day... There was this distortion of what the law had dictated. The law allowed for a vow to be made that invoked the name of God. And that vow could not be broken. But the Pharisees taught there was a loophole in the law. And that if you made a vow that you might possibly not be able to keep, you could make a vow by uh, swearing by heaven or earth or the holy city or even their own heads. Well, Jesus taught uh, uh, there's a higher standard for kingdom servants. 
We are to uphold godliness and righteousness and truth. We're to be people of integrity. Therefore, we should not need to make such vows. Rather, let our yes be yes and our no be no. Now, beloved, I hope that you know that words are powerful agents. God has given some of us huge word banks like myself. And because of that, I'm always collecting verses on words. Throughout my study time, if I come across a verse that speaks about words, I put a W in the margin and I try to read it and reread it until I can begin to catch the essence of the truth and apply it to my own life because I have so many words. In fact, one of my favorites is found in Proverbs 10 verse 19, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. If you have lots of words, therefore, you need to be editing yourself by the Spirit of God to guard your words. Ephesians 4, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification according to the need of the moment. So it will give grace to those who hear. In Colossians, the scripture says that we're to speak in such a way that our words are gracious yet seasoned with salt. 2 Timothy 2.16 says avoid worldly and empty chatter. It only leads to further ungodliness and it will spread like gangrene. Words are powerful. They're powerful. And we as kingdom dwellers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven need to guard our words so that the words we speak testify that we belong to Jesus Christ. The words are encouraging and edifying that we're building one another up in the faith. The Bible said death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words should be life-giving. Now, years ago, one of the first classes that Craig and I ever had together was a young married class. In fact, we were still at Bellevue downtown. And uh, we gathered up this group of folks. Their teacher had resigned, and we took on this class, just a few couples in it. And I remember being introduced to a couple that we just immediately connected with. And we did not know them very well. And just a few weeks after having that class, barely knowing this uh, family, this couple, I got a phone call from the wife, and she said, I know you must be terribly busy. But i got to tell you, I'm having an issue in my extended family, and I'm in so much pain. Do you think you could possibly swing by and visit with me so we could talk this thing through, so you could offer some counsel, and we could pray together? I said, absolutely. Again, I really did not know her very well, but I certainly could recognize that she was in terrible pain. And so I drove over to her house, and she welcomed me in, and she was in tears, and soon I was in tears. And we uh, sat there on the couch with our legs curled up underneath each uh, ourselves and we sat there for hours as she told her story and we talked about uh, God's word and what it said and conflict resolution and and who we were in Christ and on and on and on and uh, we were going to pray together and I can remember being in tears and just looking at my sweet friend big tears just streaming down her face in so much pain and I was going I was going to say, this is what I meant to say, this is what I meant to say. I meant to say that I am often irrational. I just want you to remember that was what I meant to say. But I heard myself say, I am often erotic. I'm telling you, I, that word hung out there in the air. 
And I thought to myself, did I say what I think I said? And I looked at my friend, and I'll just simply never forget this moment. She was just blinking at me. I could not decide if I needed to try to fix that or simply move on. I opted to move on because I, don't, I didn't think you could come back from that. And my friend never once, never once referred back to that terrible blunder. And don't you know we've been friends ever since. Words are powerful and we need to guard them and protect them. We need to make sure that what we speak is truth and what we speak is kind and good and edifying, the building up of other saints. We need to make sure that when we make a promise that we absolutely intend to stand behind it. Our words should be our bond because we should be, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we should be beloved people of integrity so that people can trust what we say. Well, let me hurry on. The next thing we see is what I call God's purpose for justice. Look in verse 38. Well, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, for whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Therefore, uh, whoever forces you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Beloved, this is radical teaching and radical thinking. Jesus is trying to get them and by extension us to begin to think differently about the way a believer operates in the midst of a world that is set against the kingdom of God. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, give them the other. If someone uh, sues you and takes you to court and you are ordered by the court to give up your shirt, then give up your coat as well. If you're required to go one mile, go the second mile. If someone has a genuine need and asks you for something, give it. Give it gladly. Give it freely. Donna showed us last week or mentioned to us that everything we have has been given by the Lord. And beloved, we're just to hold it with an open hand as a good steward. And when God requires it, we're to graciously and quickly respond to give liberally. Paul said, what do you have that you have not received? It's all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's. I can remember when Craig and I first moved out to our little uh, garage. Uh, it's been 11 years ago that we uh, went through a financial implosion and lost everything, and we moved into a little one-car garage at the time and have renovated into what we call the cottage because, frankly, I think that sounds better than living in a garage. But actually, we're just grateful. We're just grateful. But there was a, a few weeks when we were moving moving out of one house and moving into our little garage. And uh, Craig had a trailer that had been in the business for many years, and it certainly wasn't anything particularly nice or exceptional, but it was ours and it was paid for. And we were using it with our renovation. And we went out there one night, and would you believe it, out there in the middle of nowhere where we live, someone had stolen our trailer. And I just got to tell you, it just sat so badly with Craig and I, for both of us were rather stunned. It's like, we have lost everything. 
and now people are going to steal from us what little we have left? Uh, we just couldn't believe it. And yet, as we began to kind of talk each other off the ledge, I told Craig, you know what the truth of the matter is? I'd rather be offended than the offender. And my husband very wisely said, whoever stole that trailer from us, they do not know who they have truly offended because everything we own belongs to the Father. And somewhere, someone has made God their enemy tonight by touching the possessions of one who belongs, ones who belong to him. And before the evening was over, Craig and I were, together, were able to gather together and pray for that one. That somehow, somehow, God would break through and bring him under conviction or her and bring them to Jesus Christ. Beloved, what God is calling us to is to live so radically different that the unbelieving world wants to know what is this all about. That's why we're told to be ready at any instant give an answer of the hope that is within us because we're to live differently. I'm talking about marked out by the kingdom of God. No one should be surprised when they find out that we name the name of Jesus Christ. We are to be willing to go the extra mile. Roman law during Jesus' day gave a soldier the right to force a civilian to carry his pack or any of his military equipment for exactly one mile. They were required to go one mile and no farther. And so what Jesus is saying here is if you're required to go one mile, go an extra mile. One of my commentaries that I read said that most Jews so despised this law that they had measured out from their home exactly one mile and had set a marker. And when they got to that one mile, they would throw that equipment or backpack on the ground and say, there, I've done what I had to do. And Jesus said, you know what? You're a kingdom dweller. Be willing to go the extra mile. Now here's where I'm going to get off my notes. So y'all just take a deep breath and stay with me. Would you turn please to Genesis chapter 24? I was at a women's conference and heard this truth taught some years back, and it's simply one of those truths that just resonated so with me that it just sort of has been on this loop in my brain, and I could not help but show it to you because it was so meaningful to me. Now, in Genesis 24, which is where I'm going to take you, I'm just going to give you a quick little background. This is the story of Abraham getting a bride for his son Isaac. Now, at this point, you remember that Abraham and Sarah were given the son of promise when Abraham was a hundred years old. So he was a very special child, a child of covenant, for God had told Abraham that through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And yet, Sarah was barren at the time. They could not imagine how this thing was going to work out. And it took 25 years from the time of the promise until the fulfillment that Sarah was pregnant with Isaac. Now at this time, Sarah has passed away and Abraham has not secured a bride for Isaac. 
I, I wonder if it's because Sarah could not be pleased. I, I don't know why, but she's passed away. And now Abraham, who it says in verse 1 that he is old at this point. He's about 140 years old, and he wants to get a bride for his son. But he does not want to choose a woman from the Canaanites. And so he asked his servant, and most commentators believe this is Eleazar, who was mentioned back in Genesis 15 as a very faithful servant, that he sends him to look for Isaac, a bride. But he wants him to go back to his native land, to his father's house, verse 7, and take a bride from the land of my birth, because it is there that God spoke to me, and he swore to me, to your descendants I will give this land. So obviously whoever married Isaac was a very serious decision. She had to be God's choice. And so he promised that he would go and he would get a bride for Isaac. And in verse 10, I just want you to look, it says the servant took 10 camels. How many camels? I want you to remember that. I'm going to come back to it. And all these other things. And he went about to uh, Abraham's hometown, home area, looking for a bride. And in verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 12, the servant prays to the Lord and asks him to direct his steps to the one whom God has chosen for Isaac. Verse 12, he says, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw, to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say please, let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink. And I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was a, a, a relative, verse 16, I'll just drop down. The girl was very beautiful. She was a virgin. No man had had relations with her. And she went to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant who has just prayed this prayer, you understand that, he ran to meet her. And he said to her, please let me drink a little water from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand, and she gave him a drink. Now stay with me, verse 19. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. And she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all of the camels. Beloved, how many camels were there? Ten. Do you know how much water a camel drinks? Well, Google does. Now, if you're going to go to Google, you've got to watch yourself. But I'm assuming this is accurate because Google says the average camel will drink 20 gallons of water when he is thirsty. 10 camels? 20 gallons apiece? She did not know and go and get helpers. She said, I will do this. Beloved, this is the principle 
that is referred to as the and also principle. She said to the servant, here's a cool drink of cold water. Help yourself. And while you're refreshing yourself and also, I'm going to go water all of that caravan of smelly camels that have been traveling with you. Knowing what kind of appetite for water they had, this is the second mile principle. This is the and also principle. Why is this so important? Eleazar was looking for a godly woman for God's choice. And he knew that if she met the criteria, the criteria that he would know much about her character by the words she spoke and by the way she responded to his request. He asked for water. She responded, she was gracious, hospitable, kind, thoughtful, selfless, had a servant spirit. She looked well to the ways of her household. She volunteered and also to water the camels. By this he knew she was hardworking, industrious, diligent, and did not eat the bread of idleness. The works of her hands revealed the character and condition of her heart. She was a God follower. She was devoted to him. She was determined to serve others well. And the servant knew this is God's choice. This is God's woman. And beloved, if you would go and look at Proverbs 31, and I know most of us don't especially love to read that passage because it is so full of conviction, but those are the qualities of a godly, virtuous woman. And she fulfilled them. It hadn't been written yet. But these same qualities you read about in Proverbs 31 were evident in her. She was a woman of virtue, a woman of valor, a woman of value. Proverbs 31 says an excellent wife who can find her her worth is far above rubies. That's what Jesus is talking about. Go the extra mile. Don't just do what is required. Do what is unexpected. Do over and above what is needed that you might bless others. Because after all, beloved, the Bible says that when you and I were dead in our sins, Christ died for us. We who have received so much grace, can we not extend it on our king's behalf? Well, the final thing I want you to see is what I call God's pattern for maturity. In this last example, if you'll flip back to uh, Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 43. He said, you have heard it say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the uh, unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors And they were despised. Do they not do the same? If you greet only your brothers, those folks who are just like you, who think like you and look like you and dress like you, if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus reminds his hearers that our Christian faith is worth little 
if the most we can do is imitate the kind of love that tax collectors and Gentiles are able to generate, beloved, you and I have been recipients of his agape grace and love. He set his affection on us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. Oh, he ran us down in order to bless us. What Jesus is saying is the mark of you who have claimed the name of Christ, who have met him on his terms of repentance and faith, you who are kingdom followers, kingdom dwellers, citizens of the kingdom of God, you ought to live and love in such a way that is so contrary to what the world has to offer that others will see your good works and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then he sums it all up. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In your homework this week, you would have looked up that word perfect. And according to Strong's, it means mature, full-grown, adult, wanting nothing necessary to completeness, brought to an end or finished. What he's saying here is you are to be about the business of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and being conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't own a lot of good jewelry. I love costume jewelry and um, honestly if it weren't for the microphone I would wear earrings but as you know I click when I teach and so I've uh, given that up but if you see me any other time I will have on very large earrings because I do love them but I don't have a lot of, uh, of good jewelry. That's not really my thing but when I turned 42, now that was a long time ago, but when I did I lost my fine tuning and because back then I was a Bible teacher as well and I needed to be able to look at my watch and tell what time it is and I couldn't read it any longer. So I was mentioning to my husband that I was going to have to do something different about getting a watch face that I could read and that year for my anniversary Craig bought me a coach watch, a real one. Beautiful, beautiful watch. I would have worn it today except the battery is dead in it and I was so stunned by his generosity and he picked out such a beautiful watch and it was huge it had a great big face that I could simply look at and read the time on and uh, uh, one day uh, shortly after I had gotten it the battery went dead and I took it over to the mall to the wolf chase there was a little jeweler there and I asked him to replace the battery now the jeweler was a had transplanted to the United States from Russia and had a very heavy accent. And because I did not like to ask him to keep repeating himself uh, because he was trying so hard to learn English as a second language, I tried to always be able to uh, grasp what he was saying and respond quickly. But this particular time he looked at my watch and he said something and I couldn't get it and he said it again and I couldn't get it and I asked the third time, I'm so sorry I didn't catch what you said and uh, he said it again. I still didn't get it and finally he held his hands up and he says ma'am no problem I will know if this is genuine if this is a real coach watch when I see what is on the inside I'm telling you I folded my arms and stepped back I thought well that's the most spiritual thing you've ever said to me (laughs) come on y'all this lost world is so hardened in their hearts. They're sick of religious ritual. And they need to see the real thing. We need to live in such a way that Jesus Christ is honored and glorified.